Today's scripture reading is Psalm 28. And if you're joining in the black paper Bibles, um, it's on page 430. Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield, and him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Free City. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, uh, we want you to feel welcomed. We, uh, in the summertime, we've, we've made a tradition of going through the Psalms, and so we call them Summer Psalms. You may not know that. That's what we call them, uh, Summer Psalms. But Psalms are good for all the time, not just summertime. But we're only on Psalm 28, so we're going to be doing Summer Psalms for a long time. Um, and so just a reminder, like when we think about what, what are the Psalms, how do they fit into the canon of scriptures? How do they benefit us? Like one thing I, I want to remind you is that all 150 of the Psalms would have been available to Jesus. He would have meditated upon them and thought of them. We know that he uses them at the time of his darkest hour because he quotes them. The Psalms are ultimately a collection of, of songs, poems, and prayers directed at God where, you know, humanity in their place is looking at their circumstances, is looking around, and they're coming with praise of like, God, you have shown up, this makes sense. Or they're coming with deep laments of like, this doesn't make sense. Where are you? Why would you allow this sort of thing? And so we have questions, we have like raw, vivid feelings expressed. And so the benefit of the Psalms for us is we get an eavesdrop on someone as they seek after God with a question on their heart. Sometimes that is a question of why are you so good to me? Why have you been so good? Sometimes it's a question of can you even hear me? Where are you? And so like somewhere along that spectrum of you have been so good or are you even around? Do you even care of that praise or that accusation that we have for God? Somewhere on that realm, like on that spectrum of, of emotions, like you should find yourself somewhere. You know, I, I think the Psalms actually show us a humanity that is deeper, more colorful, more vivid than we dare to experience. 
I think the Psalms, they inform both our thinking, like how we think, they address our head. Like how do we think about God? How do we think about ourselves? How do we think about life and what he's done? But they also help us understand our heart. How do I not just think about God? How do I feel about God? And for some of us, like for some of us, we need God to order our passions and our feelings. We need to be more human. We're so prone to limit our humanity because we're fearful. We don't want to linger with that thought or that idea because we don't know where it might end up. And so we try to deaden it. We try to drink it away. We try to just escape. And so we just kind of go to movies or entertainment or we try to lose ourselves or we try to be busy because we're scared if we walk in those waters. What if there's not a bottom to hold us? And the Psalms are a picture that God actually wants us to wade in those waters because he wants to show us his mercy is more. That the deepest thing about you is your sin. Like the deepest thing about you, and I know sin has been done to us, like we are victims of some other people's sin, but the deepest thing about you is your sin, and the only thing that runs deeper is the grace of God, and so he wants to meet us in that deep, deep place. And here in Psalms 28, we see words like, cry. I cry out. Actually, you don't see that word because we have ESV. It says call out. It means cry out. We'll get there in a minute. We see words like crying out. We see words like guilt and remorse. And then we see this, this change like where it says, but we need to regard the works of the Lord. And in verses six to seven, like it starts off like I cry out, God, where are you? In verse six to seven, it's like God's answered. And then we see this word of man, God, we need you to be a shepherd for us. You know, today, as we look at Psalms 28, we want to understand our need for mercy. You see that word too. We want to understand our need, our great, great need for the mercy of God. And not just in like a theological understanding, but like in a felt way that God has stooped down to touch your life, that he wants to stoop down to enter into the barriers of your life. And sometimes your barriers seem too vast. They seem too big. You don't know what to do with them. Sometimes they feel so constrained. He wants to stoop down out of his goodness to enter in where you are. And that is what Psalms 28 is all about our God who stoops down. When, um, I don't know if you've ever played the game Mercy, if you were ever a middle school boy in a public institution, you played the game Mercy. Uh, if you went to a private uh, school where the main thing is learning, you might not have played the game Mercy. But in a public middle school, what, the game Mercy, it's where you interlink fingers. And then you say, go, and with bare, brute, like, strength, you try to submit the other person. And the game doesn't stop until someone self-elects themselves out, and they say, mercy. And so, like, it, it, it's judging a lot of different things. I mean, it's judging, uh, you know, grip strength. I mean, that's there. 
It's also judging things like pain tolerance. I mean, you see fingers twisted up and someone has grit and they're like, I'm not going to say mercy. It also judges stupidity. I mean, it also judges because it could permanently affect the dexterity of your life. Permanently. We took the mercy rules when I was doing student ministry and we applied the mercy rules to paintball. And so when we go play paintball, because nothing says, I love you, like Jesus loves you, like, uh, you know, shards of paint uh, and whelps on your skin. And so we took the mercy rules, and we'd always, at the end of it, it was an elective game. And so anyone who wants to play, they can play. They have to wear a mask, but they can't wear a shirt. And so typically it was just boys, um, because, well, some obvious reasons, but it was just boys that would play. And so we would make two teams and we would start. And the mercy rule was similar to the game mercy where you get shot, you're not out. You have to elect yourself out. And so the brute carnage of keep getting shot where you finally like, man, I might need my epidermis later in life. And you elect yourself out, hold your gun up and you yell mercy and you have to hold your gun up. And so you pray to God that they heard you because you are now fully exposed and like damage could occur and you'll never look normal again. And so we would play this game and it always end up with one poor soul surrounded by a gang of terror whelps after whelps and by this time you would only hear a small whimpering sound of mercy you know but you had to call out the game kept going until you call out interlinked fingers the struggle consists until you say mercy the shots would keep going until you cry out mercy in this life It throws out so much more than paintball. It throws out more than balls filled with lime green paint. And every one of us needs to cry out for mercy. The belief that you can handle it is a damnable lie from hell that will keep you from experiencing the grace of God that you so desperately need. Where do you need to cry for mercy? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, um, sometimes it's just that we don't agree. We just don't believe that we need mercy. We think we have it. God, Lord, for maybe short amount of time, that facade holds up. For maybe a season, we can distract ourselves from the pain that we have or the insecurity that we carry. Lord, the worst thing that would happen is if we carried that for ourselves. Thinking, I've got this. Going from one distraction to another, hanging our identity on one victory after another and ignoring the deep valleys in between. And so, Lord, it would be great kindness if we could see an area of our life and if we had the courage to say, God, I need your mercy. Mercy. So Father, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would bring that area. We'd lay our pride down. We would stop propping up the lie that we think we have it. Lord, you would give us the clarity of just honesty would find a merciful Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.
Psalms 28, it's all about my need for mercy, my need for my cries to be heard, to be answered by God, that if I cry out, I won't hear silence. And we're going to look at this um, under three headings, and really three words kind of help us get there. And so the first one is just the word that we don't actually see here, but cries. It says calling out, like, do I understand the cry of my heart? Like, what do we need? And I need my cries to be heard. The second, we're going to look at, like, guilt. Like, why do I need it? And the answer is because I'm guilty. Like, if I stop and think about my actions, the volition of my life, and my thoughts and motivations, like, I need it because I'm guilty. And then finally, how do we get it? How do we get mercy? And it's, we regard the work of the Lord. And so let's get started. Look at verse 1. It says this, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward the most holy sanctuary, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbor while evil is in their heart. And so if you look at the very first one, we see it says call out, but like it's really, it means cry. Like, what do I need? I need my cries to be heard. David is crying out in a way that is cross-culturally understood. Like whatever language you have, there are cries that are heard across language barriers. Crying out. He, he needs help. And so like, if you look at verse one, it says, to you, O Lord, I call. Now, I'm making the case that a better translation would be cry. The ESV says David is calling out. Um, you have other translations which go more middle ground where they use the word like supplication, like he's, he's praying, like he's calling out in such a way. Like, but here the word is shea, and like it's used to describe a, crawl, a call, calling out in desperation, fear, or sorrow. Like in those moments. You're not just calling someone. You're crying out for someone. It's a cry of desperation, fear, sorrow, or loss. I mean, there's other words that you could put in there, but it's understood by all people across all languages. The inarticulate expressions of fear, desperation, sorrow can be clearly understood in all languages. When uh, in high school, I took four years of Espanol. That's Spanish for those who didn't take as much Spanish as me. And uh, I had Senora Lesser, and uh, we would ever once in a while in vocabulary, we come across words that would be like transliterated, meaning they uh, they 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 communicate in in other languages. So it's it's a Spanish word, but it's also an English word. And like the word I remember all the time is oof, like it was one of our vocabulary words, and so is oof, and it means oof. And so like I was like, why are we even learning this word? But it, it was carrying the idea, and I had to ask because I don't know what that means. And it was like the idea of like, like something working out, the idea of relief. Like, oof, the car missed me. I'm sorry, El Coche missed me, oof. You know, the idea of like, it, it, it almost happened, it was almost bad, but it wasn't bad. And what, what, I, what I'm proposing is there are deep, heart cries that regardless of your birth language, regardless of the language that you articulate in, every other language can understand. I'm just not convinced that the cry of a parent losing a child is that much different in Portuguese than it is in English. 
I'm just not convinced that the sigh of relief of like, will it stop or will it end is that much different. I'm just not convinced that like the terror inside of someone's chest when they don't know if it's going to work out. I'm not convinced that's just much different in different languages. Like this cry is universal. The cry of desperation, fear, sorrow, and loss. You know what that cry feels like? what it sounds like? David, in verse 1, he says, to you, O Lord, I call, but a better translation, to you, O Lord, I cry out. We don't know what's going on in his life, but I think we can relate to something. It is bigger than what he can handle. It is beyond his control. Maybe for months, maybe for years, he's tried to handle it himself, but he gets to a place, a tipping point, a place he can no longer hang out, and he finally says, to you, O God, I cry. Maybe I've cried to others. Maybe I've asked for help in other means. There's nowhere else to go. To you, O Lord, I cry. See, the first word we want to wrestle with is this idea of a cry of desperation, fear, loss, sorrow that I believe is understood by all. And I believe if you're still long enough and if you're honest, you'll come to a place of where you need to cry out. David is crying out. And David is crying out, and he is afraid of something. And what he's afraid of, we see at the end of verse 1, end of verse 2, he's afraid of silence. Look at verse 1. He says, that, you know, we see the cry of desperation, of fear, loss, and sorrow. It fears hearing nothing. It says it twice. In verse 1, it says, My rock, be not deaf to me, lest you be silent to me. I become like those who go down to the pit. In two ways, he says, I can't handle silence. I can't handle you being deaf. I can't handle you ignoring this. I need to know that you have heard me. I need to know that you are there. Have you ever asked a question that you need an answer to? Even if it's a bad answer, even if it's not the answer you want, you need an answer. You need to know they heard you. Like the first time you told someone you loved them, Like, I get it. There's a lot of things you don't want to hear them say. Like, you finally get the muster up. You know, you finally get excited. You find the right place, and you look at them. You say, I want, I love you. You want to hear certain things. There are things you don't want to hear. Like, you don't want to say, I love you, and they go, huh. Like, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to say, I love you, and they go, okay. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to say, I love you, and they say, Thank you. I mean, you don't want to hear that. You don't want to say, I love you. And regardless of the language, they say, oof. You know, you don't want to hear that. But you also don't want to hear nothing. Just silence. And so David, he cries out and he just says from verse 1 to verse 2, there is one thing I can't hear from you and that's nothing. I don't want to hear nothing. I don't want my prayers and my cries to bounce off the ceiling and come back to me. I need to know that you hear me. And I think some of the key of this is how this is kind of bookended. And so look at it. It starts off in the middle of verse 1 where it says, Be not deaf to me or silent. It says, Be my rock. And then at the end of it, it says, Save me from the pit. Like, save me from going down into the pit. I need you to be my rock. Like, like with all the flooding that we've been having, like does this not communicate? 
you know, as you're being swept away by a torrent of water stronger than you, you're reaching for branch after branch, and they're breaking under the weight of what is sweeping you away. <clears throat> I'm okay. <clears throat> that was not a torrent of water. It was a torrent of saliva. <clears throat> I mean, could you picture that? Not the saliva. I'm sorry. Not that. Um. Could you picture reaching for anything solid, anything heavy enough to sustain you, anything certain and hard? I just need something strong enough to hold me. And so he says, don't let me go down to the pit. I need something solid. I need something firm. I need something unmovable of which I can stand upon, of which I can trust. I need you to be a rock for me. Sometimes when we're being swept away by our sins and our addictions and the circumstances of life, we reach out for other things. We reach out for things that can't bear the weight. We reach out for successes of our past or successes in our future. We think, if only I can grab a hold of that, I'll be okay. Or, or, or we reach out for others. We say, if they get me, if they can sit on the same level and really hear me, then I'm going to be okay. Then I won't be swept away. Or we reach for pleasures and escape. We think, if I just don't think about it and I numb my, my, my life, I numb my thoughts through drunkenness or sex or through media after media after media, and I'm just telling you, I don't think there's enough Netflix for that. We reach for all these other things. And David, in the bookends of this, says, dare not be silent to me. He says, I need you to be my rock lest I go to the pit. He reaches out for something very specific. He reaches out for the mercy of God. Look at verse 2 and 3. He doesn't want to hear silence. But he reaches out for the deepest cry, and that's for mercy. In verse 2, he says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary, like the transaction he's looking for is not just a transaction of, yeah, I see it. He's asking like, I want you to see me and I want you to get down on my level and I want you to help me. You know, translations um, on this, they translate it as mercy. They translate it as grace. And they also just translate it in between as supplication, like I need just to pray. You know, the ESV, I, I think they really get it right when it says mercy. You know, actually a couple of the commentaries that I read, they, they thought that the best understanding would be more of grace, but I just, I disagree. The, the word that it uses here for, for mercy is Shannon, which um, it's kind of ambiguous between mercy and grace, but like the best translation is that someone would bend or stoop down with kindness to help. And so you see this all over, like he's asking him to come down from his most high sanctuary to bend down to his level and to hear. And like some commentaries are going to bend that toward grace because in verses three through five, he's going to condemn these evildoers. He's going to say, oh, sweep them away, but not me. But I think the key is in verse three. The key is in verse three where he lines up with those evildoers and he says this, look at verse three. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers. He's saying, make distinctions. Don't, don't treat me like all, all the wicked people. And I think he's saying, because I know that I stand with them. 
I, I know that I am not better than them. I mean, he's going to condemn a bunch of actions in just a minute. But I think it's a moment where he actually is looking at his hands and he says, listen, you could easily sweep me away with them. I could be drug off to the pit with them, but I need mercy. He doesn't make a case right here for all the reasons why he's better. In just a minute, he's going to make a case for what actually saves us. But he doesn't make a case for why he's better. He says, don't drag me off with them. Don't drag me off. Don't count me as wicked like everyone else. I need to be distinct. I need to be different. And see, right now, like, I think there's two extremes in every room you walk into. I think there's one extreme of self-righteousness. Those of us who are blind to our own sin and our own intentions and our own motivations, we are prone to see the best in our motives and be condemning in the motives of others. We're prone to be vague in our sins of, yeah, I'm sinful, but be very specific with the sins of others. Like on one side, like there's self-righteousness that doesn't know it needs mercy. I think on the far other side, there's the self-condemned. Those who are self-condemned are certain that they fit into the wicked category. But they don't believe anything can pull them out of that category. Not even the mercy of God. See, at times, even the self-condemned, they can have excellent theology. At times, they can agree with theological propositions such as mercy, grace, and penal substitutionary atonement, all that was accomplished upon the cross. At times, they can even, you know, memorize and tell you what the scriptures say to those who are downcast and those who are hurt. But in their heart of hearts, all they hear is accusation. All they hear is detailed examples of why they don't deserve the mercy or grace of God, why God would pass over. And they need what we just read over us. They need a Romans 8. I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God, not even you. And so like in the cry with this, like where do you fall the stream? Because there's something different. There's also someone who can be very aware of their sin, but they're also aware of the grace and mercy of God. They're forgiven. We look at cries and we need to know things like this, like when we're reaching for branches that don't hold the weight as I'm being swept away by my addictions and my sins and my guilt. We need to know the words of God, words like this, Romans 8.36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Or Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or the words of 1 John 1.9, that this is what we're going to preach in the fall. I'm so excited. 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or we need the words of Psalms 103. We'll eventually get to Psalms 103. It's going to take us a while. Some of you might need to get a second PhD to stick around. But Psalms 103, verses 10 through 14 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. You could translate that as mercy. 
as a father who shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Do you see the stooping down? God knows what you're made of. He knows what you were born with. He knows what your early childhood had. He knows the circumstances that you face. He knows the questions and the doubts within. And he loves to stoop down, to come to our level, to show mercy. Now, what, what can happen here is people can argue, see, if we want to talk about what mercy is, mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. You deserve this, but he withholds it. Grace is God giving you something you don't deserve. You could never earn it, but he loves to give it. And so the distinction is small, but like the, the, the application of it is enormous. And so it's okay for theologians to want to argue between these of which one it is. I side with mercy, but one thing is absolutely certain. The word is plural. When he cries for mercy or grace, he's not crying for a singular event. He's crying for mercies and he's crying for graces. It is the supplications of his heart. And so over and over, he finds himself in the same spot. God, where are you? I need you again. If you don't give me mercies every day, I don't know what's going to happen. And the good news of God is mercies are new every day. David cries out. David cries out over and over, and he says, I need your mercy. Don't drag me away with the wicked. I know I belong there. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. I need your mercy. And it's plural, so it happens over and over. And so the first thing that we look at is this cry. This cry. Are you aware of the cry in your heart? Are you courageous enough, the uncertainty in your heart, to actually put a name to it? Like would you call insecurity, fear of abandonment, I've been lost, I've been disappointed. Would you name it? Because if we name it, now we have at least the power to call it what it is to God. And so David cries out for mercy. And then we're going to turn and we're going to look at the idea of guilt. This is going to go really, really fast, I swear. And so we look at the idea of my works. And so like, why do my cries need to be heard? And the answer is because I'm guilty. Look at verse four. It says, give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. He says, give them what they deserve. And you know, at times when you're looking out and you're looking at people who've messed up or sinned against you, that sounds like a good idea. What if, what if David in this moment just stopped? We don't know where David is in his life right here. But I could certainly say this, that if he wrote it earlier before his great failings with Bathsheba, what if he revisited it later and he looked at these things according to their work, according to their evil deeds, according to the works of their hands? Like he might think about 2 Kings chapter 11. Like at that moment, he might think about when he was derelict in his leading, when he should have been out with his army at war, but he stayed in the comfort of his house. 
He might think about, as it goes on to verses 2 through 5, he might think about when he was on his roof and he saw Bathsheba and he lusted in his heart and he said, she's going to be mine. And he sends his officials to get her. And they remind him, isn't that Uriah's wife? He might think about that. He might think about the choice. He might think about the actions. And we're going to be real specific on the actions. Like, this is arguably rape. I mean, who gets to tell the king no? He might think about his sins of omission where he should have been somewhere, but he wasn't. He might think of his sins of commission. And then he might think of the sins of commission to try to cover his sins of commission up. He might think about his friend Uriah, Bathsheba's wife. Uriah is mentioned other places in the scriptures. Uriah was one of David's like mighty men of God. He was one of the 50 or 40, 40. He was one of the, the crack troops that sacrificed over and over for David. He was in the inner circle. And so when word got back that Bathsheba was pregnant, he tried to fix the situation. So he invited Uriah back to hear about the war. He got him drunk to try to get him to sleep with his wife so he could be blameless. But Uriah was like, how could I do that when my men, my fellow men are sleeping on the cold ground without their wives? How could I do that? So then he orchestrates the murder of Uriah. Like, stop. Look at your hands. You see, I, I think one way that we could take verse 4 is like in the future tense of like, this is what's going to happen if something doesn't happen. We will be regarded by only our volition and our motivations. Only by why we did what we did and by what we did. And so David, if he would have stopped and looked at the works of his hands, the evils of his men, he would have seen, I'm in need, and I think he was. This is where we see, man, I am guilty. The works of David's hands tell a pretty damning tale. So the difference from separating him from those evildoers can't just be volition. It has to be something else. And that's where we find the word regard. Look at verse 5. And so if we're trying to answer the question, like the first is, what does my cry sound like? Do I understand it? The next is like, you know, why do my cries need to be heard because I'm guilty? And then this is, how do I get it? How do I get this thing? And the answer is, I regard the work of the Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord and the works of his hands. And so the difference between the guilty and the guilty is a regard for what God has done. And, you know, we could look at this in the sense of like, for the heavens proclaim his eternal attributes. Like we know that God is a God of order because we see so much order in the cosmos. Like we see so much order of how things happen, even in moments of absolute disarray and disorder like that of a huge storm and a huge tornado. We see the order of those things coming together so we can have early warning. There's so much order. God is a God of order. We desire and thrive in order. I can procrastinate a sermon for hours because I'm cleaning everything around the laptop. I'm like, oh, that's not quite right there. I mean, we desire order. We can also know that God is a God of justice. Because we crave when wrong things happen to see them righted. 
You see, because of temptation, because it's powerful, we're, we're prone to excuse our sinful actions. But those same excuses when someone sinned against us, they mean nothing. We know that we need a God of justice. We know it's clear. So this is what verse 5 says. It goes on, it says, So he will tear them down and build them up no more. You see, we see the judgment of God working both ways, both up and down. And I just want to make an assertion. God doesn't have to ever work judgment down. All he has to do is build us up no more. All he has to do is stand away and the depth of our depravity, the depth of our damnation, it only needs God to say, I will build you up no more. It only needs God to say, you think you have it? Go ahead, you carry it. All it needs is for God to say, I'm just going to take a step back. I'm going to give you what you've been asking for. You want me to leave you alone? I can leave you alone. For him to stop building us up no more, he is no longer our rock, and we are left to the torrent waters of our passions and desires and what seems right to us in the moment. All he has to do is no longer build us up. So then, when we regard the works of the Lord what we see in verses 6 and 7 is God answered. We don't know how long it took from these cries to go out. It could have been minutes. It could have been years. <clears throat> but God finally answered. And we see this, you know, this moment of he's like, man, you've answered. You're so good. Blessed be the name. You know, I'll worship you. All these different things. But I want to get to this. Like, when you regard the works of the Lord, what do you see? When you think about what God has done, like, what? do you have in your mind? Like, what do you see? Because this has everything to do with what it takes to be saved. It has everything to do with what the gospel actually is. You have to regard the works of the Lord. See, the, the work of salvation was done upon a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago. History testifies to that fact and the Bible gives clarification about the event that happened, that Jesus' saving work happened upon a cross, Then the moment of his innocence, our guilt was placed upon him. That in the moment that we deserve punishment, our punishment was given to him. You see, if we go back to verse 3, do you remember what the fear was? Look at verse 3. Don't drag me off with the wicked with the workers of evil who seek peace with their neighbor while evil is in their heart. Don't drag me off. Jesus was innocent, but he was dragged off with the wicked. Jesus was innocent, but he was dragged off with the wicked. Like, look at the cross. Like, he was dragged off with the wicked. He was praying with his friends in a garden, and an army came and bound him and dragged him away. He was dragged before the high priest and counted as a wicked blasphemer. He was dragged before the governing officials and accused of evil that he didn't do. Pilate even says himself, he knew that he was being falsely accused because they were envious of him. 
Over and over, people gave false testimony, and their testimony fell apart. He was dragged before soldiers who beat him and mocked him as though he were a criminal, but he wasn't a criminal. He was dragged to Golgotha, and he was crucified between two thieves. But he stole nothing. He was dragged to death, and yet he was sinless. So he became the strength of us so that the final death of hell couldn't drag us away. He was dragged away with the wicked so that we could find the rock of salvation. And that's what we see in verse 8. Look at this. It says, the Lord is the strength of his people. See, because he was dragged away, now Jesus is the strength of us. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. The Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge of his anointed. Look at verse 9. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. It's talking about a relational thing that happens. Like, we are your people. Save us. Bless your heritage. Because of the cross, we can become a child of God. We can be counted as a son and daughter of God. Bless your heritage. And then here, be their shepherd and carry them forever. That word. Like, look at these words, strength. Is Jesus your strength? Or are you still trying to do it, fix it, earn it, manage it yourself? Is Jesus your refuge? Or are you still running to people, things, and distractions? Is Jesus your shepherd who carries you? Or are you still trying to determine your own way as it best seems fit to you? That title... Jesus loved to use that title about himself. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he can sustain you. In his hands, you can never be dragged out of it. Listen to what John says. Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. We could have said it this way. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd is willing to be dragged away for the wickedness of his sheep. Down in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own known me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. We could have just as easily said, I'm dragged away for the wickedness of the sheep. I know them. And we see that like this relationship, they're my people. The saving refuge, the anointed, the the blessing of the heritage. Verse 27, I added in, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I am the Father brings just a couple questions. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? Have you responded to the quaking in your chest of like, I want that to be true, I need that to be true? You know, that response is a response of submission. It's enough. 
you know, it brings some other questions. Like when you think about eternal life and perishing and being snatched, like are you filled with fear or is there a, a confidence? It doesn't have to be this bold, incredible confidence, but is there a confidence looking back at the cross and saying, listen, I'm all in on this. I know the works of my hands or the distractions of my mind or the earnings are not enough. I am firmly convinced they are not sufficient. I'm all in on the cross. See, that's what it means to regard the work of the Lord. What you did is enough. I'm trusting you. The way we uh, take communion is we... uh, we start on the bread side and we tear a piece away to remember that the work of the Lord included Jesus' body being busted up. He didn't deserve it, but he was swept away with the wicked. We take a piece of bread and then we dip it either into the wine or the grape juice. The wine is in the stoneware, the grape juice is in the glassware. And remember that he was swept away with the wicked by his blood being spilled. And we do it with eagerness and a hope we do this with looking forward like for a second look at me we do it for the hope of more mercy to come we do it to celebrate that mercy has come that i am saved but we do it with the hope of more mercy to come more mercy in the future mercy's new every morning that's why we do communion every week because we need to be reminded that god's mercy is sufficient And so it's an opportunity for us to carry everything down and just say, this is all that I have. I bring nothing but my junk to the table. We also have an opportunity that if like you have finally given words to what you need to cry out and you need someone to pray for you, there'll be people in the back and they'll take you in the hallway and they'll just pray for you. And listen, that's if I need the mercy of God in an area of my life, that is asking for God to intervene, for him to stoop down, to enter in, And man, when we give words to it, it becomes real. And so we we give words and we talk to God about it. And there are people who want to talk to God for you about it. And they're just going to pray. And they're going to pray like every promise in the scriptures is real. And they're going to pray for God to enter in, God to heal, God to fix, God to be with you, God to speak to you, because we believe the promises of God. And so you can come forward if you're a Christian. You can go out for prayer. If you just need to sit and think about all of this, because you're not for sure about Christianity. It is chaotic. People are going to be crawling over everyone else. You won't stand out. Lots of anonymity. But it's a moment that you should ask, what is the cry of my heart? Do I believe I need mercy? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I pray that that would be clear. I pray that we would have certainty. Um, And Lord, there's probably several cries in our heart that we could list out. What is the highest cry in my heart? What is the thing that you want to talk to me about? What is the thing that I need you not to be silent about? I need you to talk to me. I need you to show up. I need you to stoop down from your heavenly courts to enter in to the boundaries of my life, to the boundaries of my soul. Lord, that's actually a really scary thing. Because right now, so many of her are asking this question, like, what does it mean if you are silent? And I think Jesus on the cross proves that there's not something you won't enter in. So Lord, give us courage. Don't let us fall without a net. Be there. 
Father, we love you and we need you as we come. Lord, let that be a physical act of a spiritual reminder that we have to come to the cross regularly. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.